Hey guys, welcome to Diaries of the Chronic, where I talk about life with chronic illness, disability, and much, much more. I'll be getting into the nitty gritty, and I'll answer all the questions that the public may have. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Diaries of the Chronic. This is episode one, and we're just going to jump right into it. I'm going to start uh this episode because it's the first one just with a little bit of an introduction on to who I am what I do and just a bit of a preview into what this podcast is about so about me my name is Bella I am a young adult I live in Melbourne Australia I've lived here my whole life I work in the hospitality area. Um, I previously worked in disability, which was, you know, a very interesting area to work in, but you know, it was really rewarding. Um, And about why I started this podcast. So as a few people may know that are in my personal life, I have suffered with chronic health and mental health issues pretty much my whole life. From the ages of I'd say around about seven to eight years old I've been unwell in one way or another. So Diaries of the Chronic to me is about sharing my experience living with disability and living with illness of sort of any sort. I have been obviously very fortunate to be able to get treatment. Um, It's been a really long road for me, um, but it's brought me here now to be able to share my, you know, aspects and my views on what I've been through and to hopefully answer questions from people, you know, whatever questions that you guys may have, you know, the deeper, the better, or even the most casual of questions, I'm happy to answer them. And I want this to be a place where it's an outlet for me, but it's also an outlet for other people to be able to listen and know that they're not alone in whatever struggles they may go through. So I made Diaries of the Chronic not only for me, but for other people to share my story and also for other people to share theirs. So I'm really excited to get this going. And I'm a bit nervous, but that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be scared of new things. Um, I've never done anything like this before, but, you know, we're just going to jump right into it. So before I get started in today's topic, I just want to put out there that no, I am not a professional and I don't have any sort of medical training or expertise in that sense. Um, This is what I have been through and my views and my aspects of what, you know, has brought me here and the things that I've had to endure. I also want to put out there a trigger warning for anyone that may be triggered by numbers or anything really to do with health, mental health, 
if you get treated easily, I suggest that this place may not be the best, but I'm going to try really hard to not censor, but make it friendly for people to understand and for people to listen. So yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm pumped. I'm excited. And I hope you guys listening uh, will get some benefit out of this and we'll really get to learn just a bit about me and then maybe a bit about yourselves, you know, as the episodes go on. So let's get started into today's topic. So for today, I wanted to do some sort of introduction on me and about my story because, you know, I'm ready to share, obviously what I'm ready to share with the world and, you know, people in my personal life will know that I am quite an open person and I'm happy to share a lot of aspects of what I've been through because I'm not ashamed of it anymore and I'm not afraid to share it. So episode one, Diaries of the Chronic, you will be hearing my story and just be warned, it may be a little bit scattered because it's it's a really long time in the making it's goodness over 13 years um keep in mind i'm 20 i'm nearly 21 this started probably when i was around about seven eight years old um yeah so i think we're just gonna jump right into it and see how it goes so a bit of a breakdown before I start. Um, I suffer with a few chronic illness issues. Uh, my main ones are gastroparesis. Uh, I was diagnosed with gastroparesis in 2019, uh, I think February 2019. So it's going on to two years now. Yeah, it's going on about two years since my diagnosis. That I would say is the most prominent and my main diagnosis that I have. Um, I also suffer with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, so POTS. Um, I'm not going to go into massive detail about, about what these things are because it's honestly, you'll probably get a better description if you just search it up on the internet. Um, but I will explain sort of what I go through with these um, illnesses. Um, I also suffer with an autoimmune disease called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And with that, um, so all three of my chronic health conditions are very intertwined and they all affect each other, um, which is also a very prominent part of well, my story. And it is for a lot of people. So that's sort of a breakdown into my chronic health diagnoses. Um, I do suffer with pretty bad anxiety and I have my whole life um, with bouts of depression and all of that. But I'm going to save sort of the mental health side of things for maybe a separate episode because um, I would like to dedicate that area even though they are all connected, 
I'd like to dedicate that area to a separate episode so I can cover a lot more information. So I guess my sort of story started when I was really young. Um, around the age of seven to eight. So this was around about 2007, between 2007 to 2009. So whoever lives in the, obviously Australia, um, would know or have heard of uh, Black Saturday. Not your Black Saturday sales, you know, that you have and the shops and stuff. Um, no, the Black Saturday bushfires in King Lake. Um, that is a very prominent part to the beginning of my story from what I remember. So uh, a family member of mine is uh, or was in the CFA. Um, and when I was very young, around that time, obviously the bushfires were going on and it was a very stressful and traumatic time. And we went through quite a lot. So right after that, um, I think something just changed, you know. And to this day, I, I can't exactly pinpoint what it is. But my assumption is trauma-based. Um, that would have... It wouldn't have been the full cause for everything that went on. But it was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back per se it was kind of just how things started to plateau um so right after the fires i developed a really really severe bout of anxiety it was just absolutely crippling and you know, I can't even explain, you know, you know, when you're afraid to do something and you just, you're so anxious, it feels like it's a life or death situation. You just, you don't know if you can do it. You can't bring yourself to do it. It was that every minute of every day. And mine was towards food and separation. So with the eating and the food part obviously back then i was eating fairly normally i was able to you know keep food down and i wasn't sick but i was having intolerances we thought and i was getting quite nauseous when i was younger around that time but then after the fires just anxiety central just decided to rear its ugly head and I was I just started to be terrified I was terrified of food I was terrified of eating because in my brain it was if I eat this I'm gonna feel nauseous and I'm gonna throw up that was the fear because I'd already been nauseous quite a lot and I'm this really small kid and I don't understand why, you know, everyone else is eating around me and I don't, I don't know, I don't know why. 
I'm just wondering, I'm like, why, why can't I eat like everyone else? Does everyone else feel sick after they eat? But the trauma just, just drove it insane. And I completely stopped. I think it was, I think it was from like, it was literally the day after. I just changed. And I stopped eating completely. I don't have the best memory of it. I remember little parts of it. But I was just, I was not eating and I was barely drinking either. I think it was the span of maybe three or four weeks. And it hit just before Easter of that year. And I had lost a tremendous amount of weight. Absolute tremendous. It was astonishing. And I had started going through all the symptoms that you go through with malnutrition. Severe starvation and malnutrition. You know, I had, I was growing hairs all over my body. So it's, it was an attempt of my body to keep me warm because I had no flesh on me. You know, I had no reserves. I had no fat on my bones to keep me warm. I was dizzy all the time. I was pale. Like, I looked ghostly, you know, and then very, very skinny and scrawny. And it was terrifying. And I look back now and I can't imagine what my family would have had to go through seeing all that. I remember... It was a Sunday, and I think it was two weeks before Easter. Yeah, it was. It was two weeks before Easter. I woke up, and I just felt like absolute death. And I was sitting in the kitchen, this little tiny eight-year-old, sitting on the floor, nibbling away at some toast. And my parents were just like, you know, it we don't know what to do. What are we, what are we supposed to do? You're, you're dying. I was literally dying. So my family just made the decision, the decision to take me to hospital. Um, and back then this was the old children's hospital in Melbourne before it got renovated in 2011. Not really renovated, but fully redone. They built a whole new hospital. Um, so this was the old hospital. And we went in. And I obviously had no idea what was going on. I don't think I'd ever been to a hospital before. Yeah, I don't think I ever had. Um, you know, I hadn't broken a bone before then I hadn't done anything to myself before then hadn't really gotten sick to go to hospital the only time I'd gone to hospital was when I was a baby and I um had surgery on my ears but obviously I don't remember that I was one or two years old at the time so I remember getting there and I was just absolutely I don't even know I can't explain what I was thinking. I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, we waited. And I didn't know what was to come. I had no idea 
what was coming. I didn't know that it would be the beginning of a really, really long journey. So we get in um, and then they, they obviously do everything that they do in triage and in emergency and they'll do your vitals and they'll do your bloods and they'll do all these tests and trying to figure out what's wrong with you. I remember my parents just being so concerned and the doctors being so concerned. And though I was about eight years old at the time, I could decipher what was going on. And everyone was really worried because you don't see, you don't see a little girl absolutely malnourished and skin and bones and basically dying in front of you you don't see that very often at all so they're doing all these tests you know food allergies intolerances ulcers um imbalances just all of these tests they're running so many to see what was going on and my bloods came back completely out of whack my obs or out of whack and that's the telltale sign of malnutrition that's your body just absolutely starting to give up on itself you know there were ketones in my wee which means that the body is breaking down the fat cells so it can keep going so i was admitted and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I mean, I'm this little eight-year-old and I'm in a big hospital with all these adults around me and everything's so serious. I don't know what I'm thinking or doing. And little did I know that that was the first day of a really long month that was going to come. So... A lot of my memory from that trip was quite, it is quite scattered and is not really there anymore. And the memories I do have are a few. I know that I did go through refeeding syndrome while I was in there, um, which is what can happen to the body when you start giving it nutrition after a really long time uh, your body kind of just goes what what is going on you know why am i getting all this nutrition all at once and it kind of goes a bit crazy um, so you always have to keep a really close eye on that and that's quite a big risk for people with malnutrition um, refeeding syndrome that's why they do get monitored quite closely um i remember Actually, I remember one of the doctors, the main doctor I had, I won't, I won't say his name, but obviously it's been over 10 years. Dude, he was a scary man. But I look back now and I know why. I know why he had to be scary. He had to be intimidating. Because I needed to eat. And that was the one thing I needed to do. So in the end, my diagnosis came to obsessive compulsive disorder 
which is still something that I struggle with today. Um, and they just determined that I had an eating disorder, which right now is definitely not the case. Back then, it's it's kind of crazy, you know. You you don't usually diagnose an eight-year-old with an eating disorder. Um, and now I know that, that was never the case because I never had any of the symptoms in my brain sort of to have an eating disorder. It was just what was going on on the outside and my avoidance to food. But my avoidance to food was because everything I was eating was making me sick anyway. So I was just, I didn't want to be sick anymore. So I was in there for about a month. I got out for maybe two or three days in between for Easter. Um, something really cool was I was actually on the Good Friday Appeal. Uh, if anyone knows what the Good Friday Appeal is, it's something that we have in Australia. Uh, for the Royal Children's Hospital, uh, they interview a lot of kids and it's big fundraisers and yeah, it's really cool. It's a really special thing. So I was actually on that in 2009 and the really sad thing is I got out for Easter weekend and I'm still bummed about this. It still breaks my heart. I was watching it and I remember exactly what I was doing. I was making cookies with my mum and I went into the kitchen for about five minutes and I missed my slot. I missed it. It was devastating. I was so upset because I got calls right after um, on my mum's phone. They're like, oh, we saw Bella on the Good Friday appeal. Oh, it was so sad. It was so sad. And I, for years, I've still tried to search it up, but I've never found it. But you know what? I can't, I can't hold on to that. That's okay. Yeah. So, after that, after that stay, you know, there are a lot of things that happened. And it, it did save my life. Because if I had kept going the way I was going at that time, I would have died. And, God, just, it would have been awful. Or just the damage that I would have done to my body. Um, yeah. So pretty much after that, I got out of the hospital and I did, you know, the eating disorder protocol because that was what my diagnosis was at the time. I was doing outpatient services and I was doing meal plans. I was doing supervised meals, you know, where my parents, you know, would make me every meal. And they'd sit down with me and they'd watch me eat it. And I had to eat it all. But that's the thing, you know, that's what you have to do in these sort of situations. You have to do it. And I'm not going to lie to you, I was cunning. I was because fear can take such a massive toll and such control over you. It can do things and it can drive you to do things. You know, it's the fight or flight reflex. You either fight or you fly. And for me, it was flight. It was avoid everything that made me feel this anxiety. So I would 
do things to avoid the things that made me anxious. And I know now that it wasn't really me doing it. It was my fear and my irrational part of my brain. So after I got out of hospital, you know, I, I did the outpatient programs and I went to therapy um, and I stayed in therapy for a really long time. So I've been in and out of counseling, psychologists, psychiatrists since I was eight years old and I'm nearly 21. And some of them helped, some of them didn't. So pretty much this cycle just went on for a while until my body was stable. You know, I went back to school. I was going to counselling. I was going to my outpatient appointments. And I had goals, you know, gain this much weight, eat this, do this. And yeah, this cycle went on for a while. And then I just went back into the normal swing of life. I was at primary school. I ended up moving schools, which was probably one of the worst decisions that I have made. Um, both my sisters went to uh, a separate school to me. I went to a primary school in my hometown. Um, they went to a secondary school uh, in a maybe a town or two over. Uh, this school had both kinder, primary and secondary. Uh, so my parents decided that they'd move me to the primary school. And at the time, you know, it seemed like a really good idea. But in the end, it was some of the worst years of my life. And I was bullied absolutely horrifically. And to me, I was a really sensitive child really really sensitive and really defensive so as soon as someone would pick on me or say something I would immediately just be defensive and sensitive about it but that doesn't change that it left a lot of mental scars so through those years I was still unwell I never really got back to a good place in my body so I wasn't fully healthy I was still nauseous all the time I was still feeling just kind of gross I was still malnourished as well but I was always on that borderline I was on the borderline of being okay and the borderline of not being okay physically so school was hard School was really, really hard for me. Um, that alongside with just being physically unwell was a mixture that just was toxic for me. And school can do that for many people. I know that school is not really the best experience for some. For the majority of people, really. But it did give me a lot of insight to who I am now and it turned me into a very strong and resilient person 
um, in a way, I am somewhat grateful that my memory is kind of warped, that I don't remember a lot of the trauma that happened when I was in primary school. This was the span of around about, about four or five years of trauma every single day. And I'm not going to get into detail because it is quite horrific. But it was hard. It was really hard. That alongside of, you know, having a lot of doctors not listen to me or my parents, diagnosing me with things that weren't real. I mean, that weren't true for me. That was hard. Um, and not listening to me as a person, you know, just speaking to my family, even when I was in the room and not wanting to hear what I had to say. Yes, I was young, but I still have input, you know. I wanted to tell you how I felt. But, you know, there are people out there that think they know better. And that has been a big part of my journey. But my years at primary school, going through a lot of several things at the same time, you know, my health and my mental health struggles, really shaped who I am now. And it's, it's extraordinary how much I have changed, even in a span of four or five years. So after primary school ended, um, I ended up leaving my, that primary school um, mid-grade six after um, an event happened that was really, really traumatic and I just absolutely refused to go back. And my parents didn't blame me. They were, they were supportive. They didn't want me to go back either. So I ended up going back to my old primary school the one that I originally started at. And that was not too bad. It was all right. It was just the last part of grade six. I did my grade six graduation. I, you know, made some friends again and I got ready for high school. So year seven rolls around and here I am, I'm this little, little thing thrown in the deep end, ready for high school. And I'm in, I'm in high school, I'm in year seven. I started at the high school near my, well, in my hometown actually. I had a few childhood friends uh, from primary school that went to that school too. So yeah, everything was, everything was good for the first little while. Um, and then I think it was the stress to this day. I, I think stress caused this downfall. I ended up just getting so sick again and I fully relapsed and it was because I just felt so nauseous all the time, all the time. And it was so bad. It was so bad. So I ended up losing so much weight again. And 
this time it was just horrendous. I ended up going to my local doctor and I was so sick. I'd, I told my mum, I was like, I can't go to school. I feel awful. So mum took me to the doctor and the doctor's like, just go to the hospital because I'm pretty sure my vitals were just absolutely off. So she said, go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. We didn't go to the children's. We went to a different hospital this time. And the same kind of cycle started again. This time it was harder in the way of I was a teenager. I was about 13, 14 now. And I had a better awareness of what was going on with my body and brain. So I knew this was no eating disorder. I, I fully knew this. I knew how I felt. And it wasn't a thing of denial either. It was, you know, I knew what was going on. So I was admitted. And immediately I was labelled as having anorexia nervosa. Which was devastating. Because myself and my family knew, we knew it was not that. And I know my parents fought to get them to listen. But as I said earlier, this doesn't go for all doctors. It doesn't. But there are people out there that do think they know better because they have a degree. Or they just... They just think they know better and it's unfortunate. This time was really, yeah, it was hard. I ended up um, having a tube. So I had ended up being placed with a nasogastric tube, which is a tube that goes in through your nostril, down the back of your throat into your stomach to provide nutrition. Because I was so nauseous, I just, I could not eat. I couldn't and they didn't believe me but to I needed nutrition I needed nutrition so what they do they they place the tube it was really hard it was traumatic um, and we started a month-long process of refeeding and I discovered very quickly that the formula that actually is used for uh, tube feedings, I'm allergic to. Not in the way of um, I'll have anaphylaxis or I'll break out in hives. No, my stomach doesn't tolerate it. I throw it up almost immediately. It's literally the quickest reaction as well. I don't even get any warning. I have it, I throw up. And it's ugly, it is so ugly. Um, so this cycle went on for a month. One month of six meals a day where I couldn't eat because I couldn't really keep it down. So they turn to tube feeding. 
six times a day plus and every time I would throw it up not on purpose it it just happened and I'd get in trouble for it every time every single time but what they didn't know is you know my body just doesn't tolerate it and with gastroparesis the high volumes of liquid that are being put into your stomach it can't digest it can't it can't go through and now after I've had a lot of treatment and a lot of investigation we now know why it also wouldn't work and you know every time I throw up they have to do it again so it got to the point where I had to force the most the most the biggest amount of force to keep it down I'd be sitting in a position for two hours on end to hold it in if I moved an inch I would be sick I'd be sick and it's just it was awful and you know I'd have meetings with the doctors they'd label me as anorexic and that was it they wouldn't listen unfortunately I went through refeeding syndrome again and it was a nightmare it was a nightmare it was and then finally they let me out and the reason they actually let me out I found out was because I wasn't gaining any weight and that was because I was throwing everything up so I think my mum just begged them was like just let me take her home and at that point I'm pretty sure the doctors were just like we're just letting her go home to die and looking back now it's obviously really sad but it also shows the determination that my family had to save my life so we went home and this time was quite different in the way of after my first round with this battle we did the eating disorder protocol of refeeding watching what I ate when I ate it supervising me making sure I finished it this time my mum took the reins and was like Bella you have the control you eat whatever you want to eat you know you eat high calorie foods do you you want chips you get chips you want pudding you get pudding and that's what we did I remember the first thing I had in a month I hadn't eaten a single thing in a month and as soon as I got out of the hospital I wanted watermelon so we got watermelon and we went to the cafeteria as well we got chips and a chocolate pudding and I went home and I sat on the couch watched some movies or something and I ate it and it was amazing and I felt sick but it was okay because I was safe and that's how we went that's how we did it and it went on for a while 
but it was okay. I remember after that, I was in my school's production. I was in the crew, which was really fun. I was this little, I was this little like, how old was I? That 14 year old now? Yeah, this little 13, 14 year old. And I got to boss people around backstage. It was, it was fun. It was really fun. Um, I ended up leaving high school in mid-year eight uh, due to just the trauma that I'd experienced when I was younger in school. It was just, it was too much for me and my family were just tired of trying to get me to go all the time but I just couldn't do it. So after that I did distance education, I did TAFE courses um, and I just tried to focus on my health. In those period of years between, I'd say 2014 and 2016, those were the years that my mental illness really started to come into play. I developed really severe depression um, and some quite bad tendencies. And it was really scary. It was really scary for myself and my family. So ultimately, I ended up being admitted to a psychiatric unit. And the thing is, I'm not ashamed to say it anymore. A long time ago, I was afraid to tell people that I'd been in a psychiatric hospital. But it's not something that you should be ashamed of. I admitted myself because I knew that I needed help. And now I think it's one of the most courageous things that I've done. So I was in a psychiatric unit seven times between the years of 2014-15 to 2016-17. I was in adolescent units and then I got moved to the adult units. I have made lifelong friends there and I've also met people that I've had my quarrels with and we are no longer friends and that's okay. But every single time I admitted myself, I made the decision to go to my family or my therapist and tell them that I was not okay, that I was not safe and I needed to go into hospital. So in that time, I was on and off a lot of different psychiatric medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, benzodiazepines, um, a lot of different things to just help what was going on and ultimately my diagnoses were quite a lot um I'll, I'll run through what they are but I'm not going to go into detail so I was diagnosed with depression uh also seasonal depressive disorder seasonal affective disorder sorry uh generalized anxiety disorder obsessive compulsive disorder PTSD so post-traumatic stress disorder um, Asperger's uh, and actually most recently 
I was diagnosed with mild ADHD. Uh, also, one diagnosis that's a bit up in the air, it, it's a formal diagnosis I have, but is borderline personality disorder. And I'm not ashamed to say that I have these things because that's a very, very small aspect of who I am. And it doesn't make me who I am. So yeah, I was in hospitals for my mental illness. And that was to keep me safe. And I just want to make it clear that no one should ever be ashamed or make you feel ashamed for doing something for yourself. And there should never be a stigma for mental, emotional, physical illness. What's the point? What is the point in it? Why? It just makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. But, yeah. So that went on for a few years. I was in and out trying to save myself um, and then 2017 rolls around and the whole cycle started again got really really sick and I went into hospital again this time I went to a different hospital and I actually ended up being sectioned under the mental health act um, which was really scary. It's actually really scary. And this time, I think I was probably the sickest I'd ever been. I was in there for a, for a month and I was tube fed and I was verbally abused by staff. And that's not a, you know, how do I say? It's not a overreaction, it was, it's a legitimate thing. We actually had an investigation on the psychiatrist afterwards, a few years afterwards, after all this happened. There was an investigation over her. And I was in there for quite a while. I wasn't allowed visitors. I had very little privileges. Um, and this time I went through really bad refeeding. And also the cycle of vomiting with the tube, which led to them thinking I had bulimia, which is definitely not true. It was my body not handling what they're giving me. And that's not my fault. And then after the four weeks, they took me off the Mental Health Act. And that day I rang my mum, I said, come and get me. And she came and got me and we left. Just like that. Because she knew how awful it was. And she could see the pain I was in. That month of my life, I had never felt so alone. I had never been so done with my life and it was really sad it was really sad but I made it out the other side and after that I ended up moving out of home 
quite early actually. I moved out at 17 and I moved in with one of my dearest friends that I met actually on one of my on my first day to a psychiatric unit and she'll forever be close to my heart like she'll be she is a soulmate to me so I moved in with her and my body was okay and I ended up gaining quite a lot of weight about yeah, 25 or 26 kilos altogether where I was borderline overweight um, and a lot of gastric symptoms started to arise I was chronically bloated to the point where it looked like I was pregnant it was awful it was so uncomfortable I had heartburn all the time I was nauseous all the time it was awful so this went on for quite a while and maybe a year this went on and I moved into my first official rental with some people and I just took matters into my own hands I took my care into my own hands I was making my own appointments I was doing my own research because the whole time my whole journey I knew that something was going on in my body and I knew that something wasn't right and we'd been to many doctors and they'd said nothing's wrong with you nothing's wrong with you it's anxiety you're overthinking but it was never that I knew in my heart and I knew in my gut that something was wrong so in the end my body was struggling I was in and out of emergency rooms for the symptoms of my postural static tachycardia so I was fainting a lot I had a lot of swelling in my ankles and feet I was dizzy all the time whenever it got hot I got really sick so people with pots don't tolerate the heat very well which is fun <laughs> but yeah so I was in and out of hospital and I actually got diagnosed with pots easier than I got diagnosed with the others so my diagnosis with pots is actually quite simple I had a halter monitor uh, which is a monitor that monitors your heart rate and your blood pressure for anywhere between 24 to 72 hours um, and it'll take your heart rate constantly and take your blood pressure around every half an hour to an hour that showed the signs of postural orthostatic tachycardia so a fast heart rate and a low blood pressure on standing so that was a good diagnosis to have you know to know what was going on so I was put on some medication to help and to this day I'm still on that medication I'm on some new ones as well that have really helped me and this went on for a while and then it got to the point at around about the start of 2019 that I wasn't able to keep anything down anymore I was throwing up basically everything I ate and I dropped a bunch of weight and I was I was so just tired you know mentally tired so in my last stretch of effort I was researching and I found something called gastroparesis 
strange. I was looking at everything. I was reading articles and articles and articles. And then I found a specialist up in Sydney, Australia, who literally was sent down by the gods. Sent down by the gods, this man. I love him to bits. He's amazing. And I got in contact with him via email. And I told him my story. And I asked him, is there the possibility that this could be gastroparesis? Now, this specialist is one of Australia's leading in gastroparesis studies. He's absolutely amazing. And he got back to me. And we corresponded for about two months. He sent me to a few places down here in Melbourne. Um, nothing really came of it. And me being the determined and stubborn person that I am, in my last little bit of energy, told him, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to see you. I'm going to come to Sydney. And I want to see you. And he gave me a date and a time and I went. I went by myself and I went to Sydney and I had these tests done. And I remember the anxiety that I had walking into that hospital to meet with him. Because this was my last push, you know, my last bit of energy that I had to find an answer because I was so just tired and fatigued and I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do it anymore. And I was so scared that I'd just get the same answer that I'd been given for nearly 10 years was eating disorder, anxiety, nothing's wrong with you, you're fine, go home and eat some wheat bix I've been told that many times. I walk into his office, I've got the results in my hand of my gastric emptying study. Obviously me, I didn't know what the results meant. I did take a sneaky peek at them, but I didn't actually know what they meant. I took them in and they'd already been faxed to him and he knew. And we sat down and had a chat and he said, yeah. It looks like you do have gastroparesis. And him and his colleague were in the room. And <laughs> I burst into tears. And they look, they're looking at me and they're like, why are you crying? And I was like, because you believe me. You listen to me. You are the first people to just listen and believe me that I was telling the truth. And then now that I have physical evidence, I have I have it written on paper. I have it here. So we talked and we made a plan and tried a bunch of things and he sent me back down to Melbourne with referrals, scripts, and a full plan and it was amazing I started seeing a gastroenterologist down here in Melbourne who bless her 
she is amazing I tried many medications unfortunately I was still quite unwell and we went from there I ended up having a few gastroscopes so uh, endoscopes to check out my stomach and then we decided to try Botox injections so basically what they're doing is they're going in with an endoscope and they're injecting Botox into the pyloric muscle so the pyloric sphincter which is the bottom of the stomach that opens up to pass so food can pass through into the intestines so the Botox actually relaxes it so it opens up so we did that cycle for about a year every month for a year unfortunately it did start losing effect um, so I was quite unwell we tried something called an NJ tube which is like a nasogastric but instead of going into the stomach it goes into the intestines so it bypasses the stomach that didn't really end well for me but that's okay we gave it a try and then in my luck I was referred to a surgeon here in Melbourne who did a procedure called the G-POM so a gastric pylor <laughs> a gastric perioral endoscopic myotomy there we go I got it which is very similar to Botox it does the same thing but instead of Botox what they're doing is they're cutting the muscle so it permanently stays open so that was in the works um, unfortunately COVID happened and I wasn't able to have the procedure done sooner so in October of 2020 October the 21st I went in for my G-POM procedure and I remember looking at my surgeon before going into theatre and she asked me you know what do you expect to happen after this like what do you hope for and my answer was anything better than this I didn't care if I was cured see the thing is with gastroparesis there's no cure it's symptomatic relief but I didn't care if all my symptoms would go away because I was being realistic all I hoped for was to feel a little bit better just for something to change and I had my surgery and it was really hard the physical aspect of the surgery wasn't um, I recovered really well I was only in hospital I think overnight and in the morning I had a scan where I drink some fluid and they test to see if it goes through um, my pyloris okay and I have to say that it was disgusting the the fluid that they they make you drink it was oh it was so awful I had to try not to gag when I was having it but yeah it was just oh, it was nasty 
but I got it done and that was good and everything was clear and I went home mentally it was hard on me because it was something that I'd been waiting for for a really long time and it was kind of just this massive sense of relief but it was also a really big adjustment so that leads it up to now the outcome of my surgery has been amazing I am keeping everything down I am not bloated to the point where I look pregnant and I'm super uncomfortable anymore I'm still limited in my food options and that's okay but it's a better outcome than I could have imagined I'm not cured no but that doesn't bother me because it gave me a new outlook on life it gave me more opportunities it's allowed me to eat with my family have a Sunday dinner eat with my housemates order some takeout and not be hurled over a toilet for hours on end in writhing pain and for that I am forever grateful and it's still a long road ahead I still have healing to do in my body I still have weight to gain and things to do but I'm back doing what I want to do I'm dancing I'm working I'm doing this podcast and I am hoping to share my experience with people and I want others to share their experiences with me so that leads me to not the end of my story but to the current time I'm surrounded by a family who fought for me and continue to who love me and though we do have our issues I wouldn't replace them for the world I have housemates who are amazing and though we get on each other's nerves who doesn't like I can be a pain but that's okay because I'm pretty sure that they've seen a difference in me now to how I was and I am working and I'm making friends and I'm making relationships and I'm just grateful for how it is now and my story's not over and I know that I will go through hard times and I will go through things that are painful but I also know that my life means so much and I have so much to live for and to the people who know me if you had seen me three four years ago compared to now it is the most tremendous difference it's amazing and it took me a really long time to notice these things and to have the outlook that I do have now and I've learned that I don't need anyone to make me happy I don't need 
I don't need anyone, you know? You don't need other people's approval. You don't need that. You need your approval, your love, your self-respect. And you live your life and you do what you want. You do what makes you happy. And that's what I strive to do for myself now. I do what makes me happy. And I don't need anyone else's approval to do that. Because I'm an adult, you know? We're going to mess up. We're going to fuck up and make mistakes. But that's what life is about. So I'm grateful. And I just hope that me sharing this part of my story, and this is only, this is honestly a small part. This is just the surface. I have been through so many things. But if I were to share absolutely everything, that would take 10 years to do so. It would take a really long time. But this is me. This is who I am. And my illness, either mental illness or physical, does not define who I am. But it has shaped who I am. Which I am grateful for. I hope that this shows people that it's okay to be who you are and it's okay to struggle because you can get through anything you can get through anything even though in the darkest times you can feel that the world is literally crumbling around you and you can't do this anymore but don't use the word can't I refuse to use that word because I know that compared to everything that I've had to go through, I can get through anything. And I hope someone takes away something from this. And though it is a bit sappy and cheesy, the last few minutes of this podcast, I don't care. I don't care. I'm just happy that I have this opportunity to share all of this with you. And I really hope that you all listen and enjoy. And I'm really excited to continue to make content and talk to people and get their stories and learn about them and get their outlook on their life or lives. And I think it's going to be really fun. It's going to be a really fun journey. So. This episode, I'm not going to answer any questions at the end. I'm going to leave it at that. But I do encourage you to go follow my Instagram at Diaries of the Chronic. Send me a DM. I would love to hear some feedback. I really would. And if you feel comfortable, share your story with me because I would love to hear it. It would be absolutely amazing to learn more about the people who listen and I've got some really exciting things lined up I've got some exciting plans and I hope you all listen so follow Diaries of the Chronic follow me on Spotify and until then I'll see you guys next time bye